Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. I'm Alice. And I'm Brett. And this is The Prosecutor's Legal Blues. Welcome back to Legal Briefs, everyone. I am your host, Alice, and I'm joined, as always, by my perplexing co-host, Brett. Hello, Alice. Are you saying that because I can't talk and you can't understand what I'm saying? I think you're saying that, but I was saying that because of the case that we're covering today, which is perhaps the most perplexing case that I've read in recent memory. But also, I'm perplexed by why your tongue seems too big for your mouth right now. <laughs> I don't know, guys. If 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 this show doesn't work out tonight, y'all just forgive me because there's something about talking that's just not working. I My mean, mouth is just not working. It's maybe the case of the Mondays. It's just a Monday. It's not even that late. Usually we record, you know, an hour later than we do now. So this is like early in the night, Brett. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm losing it. We'll just have to see. Well, I'm glad you're here because you're about to jet off on even more travels. And I just came back from travel. So we've just been like ships passing in the night. And we've done a lot of interviews because there's been so much going on in the Delphi case that I'm actually really glad we get to sit down and record a not, you know, two hour notice interview about, you know, Delphi or something like that. As much fun as that is, this this is kind of where I love just digging into a case with you and hearing your thoughts because we haven't really talked about what is taking the media true crime world by storm right now. And that's the Moscow 
quadruple murder. Yeah, and the thing about Delphi is we have more information than we used to, but we still don't have that much information. We have even less concrete, solid information in the case we're going to talk about today. And this is one we've kind of held off talking about it for a while because, honestly, I just assumed that within a couple weeks of the crime, we would have a much better idea of exactly what happened and what motivated it, even if we didn't know who did it, even if the police hadn't made an arrest. And so we just kind of kept waiting and waiting, and people kept asking and emailing and DMing us and everything else. And at some point, we just decided, let's go ahead and do an episode on it, talk about what's out there in the media. I think there are a few things we have to say just right off the bat, Alice, which, number one, there's not a whole lot of concrete evidence in this case so far. The police have kept a lot of stuff close to the vest, which is totally understandable. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about today are rumors. We're going to try and tell you when we think it's pretty solid. And we're going to try and tell you when rumors have been debunked. And by the time you hear this, there may be information that we mentioned that's stale. Obviously, if there's any major update in this case between when we record it and when we release it, we will record an update. But this is sort of where we are today as we record in what is a an incredible case and just a really strange one. I mean, look, I think Alice will agree with me on this. It is rare. It is rare to have this sort of home invasion crime anyway. I mean, home invasion crimes are the kind of things that are in your nightmares, right? I mean, but they don't happen that often, luckily. It is even more rare to have four people killed in a single home in a single night. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that some of the most famous crimes of all time have fact patterns like this. So this is an incredibly rare case, an incredibly rare occurrence. And the fact that it seems like, at least as we speak, the police don't have a very solid idea of where they're going in this case, I think really speaks to the mystery here. I think that's right, Brett. And add on top of that, you know, what you just said, it's so rare to have a home invasion. And by the way, in case you didn't know why, it's because actually most people are looking for easy crimes. Most people breaking into your homes are not looking to murder you. They're trying to make a quick buck off things they can easily steal from your home. And second, not just a quadruple murder, but a quadruple murder with other people in the house at the time of the murder who were unharmed and currently are not suspects and don't seem to be kind of a part of the inquiry into who the perpetrator or perpetrators are. I mean, it is just, this is a, a nightmare, a, a real nightmare. I think everyone's like greatest fears come true to be murdered in your own bed in the safety of your home with other people around. I mean, there's so much about it. The victims are so young. This is a college town. I mean, Moscow, people act like it's the tiniest town in America. It's actually not. I mean, it's not like a podunk middle nowhere town, but it's pretty small compared to a lot of places. It's not the kind of place to use the cliche. Things like this don't happen in places like Moscow until they do. And I think that's one of the reasons this is there's so much about this case that's captured people's imaginations. It is in some ways, and and don't take this the wrong way because you know people get all sort of upset when you talk about cases and the way you talk about them. But in some ways, this is sort of the perfect true crime case. You can understand why this has become such a big deal because of the victims, the sympathy that you have for them, the fact that they're young, the fact it's in the college town, the fact that it's a home invasion, the fact that there are two survivors, the fact that it was done with a knife, all these things combined together to make this case interesting. So let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we know. 
and sort of what we see here. Some of this is going to be speculation, but I mean, that's why you come here, right? I mean, if you came here for just the facts, you could read those in the newspaper. So we will speculate a little bit, but hopefully it will at least be interesting to you to help you understand this. So the victims, I'm going to do the best I can with their names. And if I get any of them wrong, feel free to correct me. Kaylee Gunclaves was 21. And Kaylee was best friends from high school with another of the victims, Madison Mogan, who was also 21. So they were best friends together. And we're going to talk about some of the dynamics of the house in a second. But these two had known each other for forever. They'd gone to high school together. Now they're going to college together and they're rooming together. In addition to them, they're sort of group one. And you'll see kind of based on the pictures, almost all the pictures, Kaylee and Madison are together. I think they served actually as bridesmaids recently in one of their sister's weddings. I believe they were in the same sorority. All their pictures, you didn't have to splice them together. They seemed to always be together. They posted on social media about things they did together. And as a lot of people do in college, best friends lived together. And that's what they did here. And it's often described as the Moscow Four, but I think... I think it's worth considering this is really the Moscow 2 and the Moscow 2. These four people were friends, obviously, and they're living together. But those of you who've ever lived in a situation like this, when you're in college or you're in law school, you're living in a big house with a group of people, in this case, six people total in this house, you're going to be closer to some than others. And some of it's going to be a matter of convenience because Maybe you and your best friend can't afford the place you want. You really like this place, but you need somebody else to fill up the other bedrooms. And so you find some friends. I know in law school, I lived in a house with four guys. There were four of us, four of us total. I was really good friends with one of them. I had been friends with the other, but kind of fell out. And then frankly, I didn't really like the third guy. But we all lived together, and that dynamic affected everything else. You know, me and the guy I really liked, we were the ones who tended to go, you know, out to grab something to eat together. But we might all sit together and watch a movie on the television or something like that, right? The dynamic of the household often has little groups and they're not opposed to each other. It's just you're not necessarily as close to people as some people as you are to others. I think that's really important that you bring up, Brett, because I think we can assume that Kaylee and Madison, because they went out together that night, that they could probably tell you the other person's schedule and generally know what the other one's up to and probably have a similar group of friends or at least their groups of friends overlap a good bit. But it's not clear to me that the other two that we're about to talk about fall into the same camp, that all four would have had the same group of friends and would have known each other's whereabouts on any given night. And in fact, my my understanding is of the six people in this house, two of them went one place, two of them went another place, and two of them went a third place. So you really did kind of have three groups of two people who all went to different places and then came back together at their house that night. So that's Kaylee and Madison. Then we have Zanna Carnoodle, who is 20. Zanna was a junior, and she was dating Ethan Chapin. Chapin was also murdered. He was 20. Now, he was a freshman, and he was also a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity. He did not actually live in the house, but he was dating Xana, and he was staying over that night. Right. So here we have two girl best friends and then a couple that were dating. So pretty much so far, it's all a very regular kind of college rental house. 
Now, the murder that we've been talking about occurred on a Saturday night. Ethan and Zana had gone to a fraternity party at the Sigma Chi house where Ethan was a fraternity member. Maddie and Kaylee had gone to the corner club bar. And they left the bar around 1.30 a.m. and they hit up a late night food truck. They got an Uber and arrived home just before 2 a.m. And we know that to be true because there is security footage from that food truck with a timestamp. And so we have a pretty good idea. This is not the speculation we're talking about. We have these kind of concrete timestamps. We'll talk more about what was seen in those videos, but they do get home a little bit before 2. Now, Kaylee then called an on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jack DeCour, seven times between 2.26 and 2.52 a.m. Given the lateness of the hour, it's not too surprising, but he didn't answer. And later on, he said that he didn't answer because he had been asleep. Now, even though they were currently broken up, they had dated for a very long time, for multiple years, and there may have been talks of them getting back together. So this was in a situation where she hadn't talked to Jack in, you know, a very long time. I think they had been in pretty constant communication. Those things where I'm sure there are people out there who think it's weird that she's calling her on-again, off-again boyfriend in the middle of the night. It is not weird <laughs> at all. I mean, she'd been drinking that night. Especially after, I was going to say, especially after a late night of drinking. So much so that you probably needed like a little, we call it a grease soaker upper, you know, like getting a good greasy meal before going to bed to kind of help that hangover that might may or may not be coming. I mean... I, I, were you in a fraternity? I was in a sorority in college. I was not. Yeah, I, I will say I wasn't most, as cool as you know. <laughs> that's, I don't know that I was cool, but I was in a sorority. And I will say a lot of calls are made between like the 2 and 3 a.m. hour because after 3, I feel like a lot of people pass out from like exhaustion or from drinking. But 2 to 3, I think, especially if it's a going out night, a lot of people have gone out. They've had a good time. People tend to call exes or people that they might want to come over to hang out in a romantic sense. So I'm not saying that's what happened here, but I don't think this is that strange. So I don't know this for a fact in Moscow, Idaho, but I'm going to guess that the bars close around two. Where I went to school, University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, the first year or so I was there, the bars actually never closed. And that was interesting, right? But at some point, Alabama got named like the number two party school in America, and they decided that was not a moniker they wanted to have, so they cracked down on it. And they went to two o'clock for the bars to close down. And the reason they said they were doing that is that's pretty standard around the country. I haven't looked it up on Moscow. I bet you that's a that's basically what happened here. Is the bars start to close, they leave, they hit up the food truck, they get some food, they grab an Uber, they head back, and then. Once again, three o'clock in the morning is not that late. I mean, that's kind of the going to bed hour is what I recall from college. I can't believe that I ever stayed up that late on a regular basis, but I did. And so I don't find anything strange about these times. I don't think it's strange that she was awake. I don't think it was strange that she was calling her boyfriend. I don't think you can read anything into that. I don't think they were being held hostage and she was trying to get his attention to come rescue her or anything. No, I think what we can say for certain based on this is, there was no crime before 2.52 a.m. Whatever happened 
happened after that. Yeah. So this is an interesting house, first of all. I think it's worth talking about. It's a three-floor house. In the college town I went to, really, it was like any room that could be a bedroom was rented out by the landlords, <laughs> and it didn't really matter. But this particular house was three floors. The first floor, almost like a basement, because I think the living space was mostly on the second floor, and then the third floor. Two, There were two people in the house when the murders happened who lived at the house, and they both lived on the first floor floor. What we do know is that the four people who were murdered lived on the second and third floors. And so we know of at least Kaylee and Maddie, who were on the lease at the house, and Zana. That's three people. Ethan was not on the lease in the house, but he stayed there because he was dating Zana. The two people who lived on the first floor also were on the lease in the house. And apparently, so that's, I've just listed five people. Apparently there is a sixth person also on the lease. We don't know their names, but apparently that person was not at the house. Just to kind of give you an idea of the size of the house and how many people who may have access to the house, because each of those people probably have other friends who have access to the house. I mean, for one, my college house was, I think, never even locked, but this is not like a small apartment with just two bedrooms, for example. This is a pretty big rental house. Now, we do know that there were at least two other girls, like I mentioned, who also lived in the home. And the two who survived are Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen. And they were completely unharmed that night. And we can speculate as to why this is. But if you look at the house, and it's likely not evident that there would be two people living on the first floor since if you don't know the house well, it's possible you just think the first floor, as most houses are, just have like the living space, kitchen, living room, etc. And let me say, if you look at a picture of the house, too, like, and we'll post a picture on the website, it is a weirdly constructed house. So this first floor is kind of, it almost looks like, like if you look at it from the side, it almost looks like a staircase. Like you have this first floor and then attached to it kind of higher up to the right. I mean, imagine this, you got like a box and that's the first floor. And then to the right of it, you have another box that's a little higher and that's the second floor. And then on top of that's the third floor. And if, for instance, this isn't someone who's familiar with this and they're entering on the second floor through a sliding glass door, they might just not even think about the first floor being a living space. It may just not be something that even crosses their mind. And, and people have wondered, you know, why would you kill everybody but not those two? Well, if you don't even know there's bedrooms down there, you might not think to check. And does this, you know, point to this being someone who didn't necessarily know that house, had never been in it? Maybe. We can talk about that more. Yeah. And and that's a really good point because the sl it appears that the perpetrator came in through the second floor. And a lot of people have said, well, how can these two girls who are living on the first floor not have heard something that was happening? Again, this was a going out night and those two girls on the first floor had gone out that night and they stayed out pretty late in terms of, you know, late for me, I guess not that late compared to their roommates, but they stayed out till about 1 a.m. and probably had something to drink and were probably out, out in terms of like fallen asleep and in a deep slumber as well. And this, this to me is just not weird. And I don't really understand why people think this is so strange. I mean, look, I don't know if presumably a lot of you out there have drank before and have drank too much before and then fallen asleep. For me, I can be a light sleeper, but if I've been drinking once I'm asleep, I'm probably not going to wake up until the morning. And that's just the way it's going to be. 
and the world can pretty much end and I'm not going to wake up. And that's just how it is. And these girls, it's not as if they were right next to what was happening. They were on the first floor. That's the first thing. The second thing, if the police are right and everyone was killed in their beds, that means that it's not just them that didn't wake up. It was, it was two of the victims who didn't wake up because whoever this is, they killed two of the victims. Then they moved on to the next two. And if they were still in their beds, it means they slept through it too. So it's not that surprising that these girls would also have slept through it. That's a great point, Brett. And also remember, we noted that so many people lived in the house and even people who didn't have their name on the lease in the house were staying over. In college, my house was pretty loud. You know, sometimes the after party would come back to my house, but I was like, I'm out for the night. Like, I'm not going to come out into the living room. So sometimes there was a lot of ruckus in my house, especially if there's six, maybe seven people who regularly stay over at your rental house. And you may not even think that any commotion is something out of the ordinary. Put on top of that, you might be in some kind of alcohol-induced slumber and not inclined to be an easy waker. So again, I think so far, putting into context of where they are in life and kind of the time of night and what was going on before, so far it seems pretty run-of-the-mill. Yeah, and I think this is a really important point. I think everything Alice is saying is really important to remember. And just keep this in your mind. When you're watching the news and you're hearing people and Everybody always wants to, they want to sensationalize everything, right? Because it's better for ratings and just pull back a little bit. This is a college place. You get used to the noise. I can sleep through things that I probably wouldn't be able to sleep through otherwise because I lived in a house, not unlike this. Like I said, there were four of us in our part. There were two people downstairs. It was a house that essentially the rental person had divided into, there were three floors, but he sold it as the first floor apartment that had two bedrooms and then the second and third floor apartment that had four bedrooms. But it was really one big apartment. And in fact, we knew the people downstairs. So people were coming and going all the times. You know, the the walls were thin. You could hear things all the time. You learn to ignore it. And certainly, whatever you're hearing, unless it's very obvious, you're never going to assume, is someone stabbing my roommates to death? You're just not going to think that you're going to rationalize it away. So whether they just slept through it or whether they heard something but didn't think anything about it, I just don't think it's necessarily significant. Maybe it'll turn out to be, but I don't think it is. And I think particularly when you look at the type of crime that was committed here as we continue to go through this, highly unlikely, I think, and I'm sure, you know, if you're on Reddit, close your ears because this is going to upset you. I think it is unlikely that two young women committed this crime. That's one thing I'm going to throw out there. And, and these two roommates are two young women. I just, I don't think they did this. So police believe this was not someone in the home. They believe that someone entered the home through a sliding glass door on the second floor between 3 and 6 a.m. 3 a.m. obviously because it had to be after all these phone calls were being made. Now, we've talked about these four people who were killed. They were actually in two separate bedrooms is what we understand. So Maddie and Kaylee were on the third floor, and they were actually in the same bedroom, in the same bed. Ethan and Zanna were in her room on the second floor, in the same bed. So you can imagine someone comes in through the second floor glass door. What we've heard is the police think that Ethan died first. Now that could tell you a couple different things. One could be that the person was familiar with this home and knew who would be in it and knew that it was important to go to that second floor room and kill Ethan first because he is the only male in the home and he's going to present more of a challenge. 
Or it could just be that whoever came in, second floor, they went to the first room they found, they killed the first people they found, and Ethan was the first person. Either way, they then moved on to the third floor and killed Maddie and Kaylee. And I think this is really important that these four people were in two beds because I think this goes more towards someone who is like sweeping the house to kill everyone they find, right? They made it to two bedrooms and they may not know that the first floor even had anyone who slept there because when you kill this many people out of the two beds, it seems more like a total elimination rather than a targeted attack at one person. Because think about it, if the target were someone on the second floor, why go to the third floor? Why risk being caught? Do your business of whoever you need to finish, maybe finish off the person who's the only witness in the same bed on the second floor, but then run. And it seems highly unlikely that if they were targeting Maddie or Kaylee on the third floor, that they did a double oopsie, because clearly one of those people, Ethan, was not Maddie or Kaylee. He's a man, not a woman. It seems strange that they would oopsie kill three people before they finally got to the right person. So what I'm seeing so far is just like someone who's sweeping a room almost like military-like to eliminate every living person that they see along the way. And as we're going to talk about, there's been a lot of speculation that Kaylee was the focus of this attack. But what Alice says, I think, makes a lot of sense. If Kaylee is the focus of this attack, then... I think it almost has to be someone who wasn't very familiar with the house that knew she lived there, but that was all they knew. And so they went in there planning to kill her. They went in the second floor. They found the people on the second floor. They killed them. It wasn't her. And so they went to the third floor. If this is someone that knew her well, if it was someone that was intimately familiar with her, I don't think they would have done that. I think they would have gone directly to the third floor and killed her. The only possible exception to that is if they were so depraved that they thought, I am willing to kill everyone in that house to get to her just to prevent the possibility that the people on the second floor would wake up and confront me as I fled, I'm going to go ahead and kill them too and eliminate them and then go for her. And if you're going to do that, might as well cover all your bases and kill the people on the first floor too. <laughs> you know, if you were so intimately familiar with Kaylee and her living situation. Yeah. I mean, it's just walking through that and, and the fact that you would, did you do it with a knife? You know, as we're going to talk, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but you know, you think through this, if you're prepared to kill multiple people, I mean, to me, a knife is not the type of weapon I would use, but I guess if you use a gun, it's loud. I don't know. It's all speculation there, but Nevertheless, let's keep going. So I've read 11. I've read noon. We'll go with it around noon. Someone calls 911 to report an unconscious person. And this is all very strange, but I think some of this may be just, we don't necessarily have the best information here. So we don't necessarily know exactly how this went down. We just know what's been reported. It's been reported that this was an unconscious person. That seems a little strange to me because what we do know for certain is this was a very bloody crime. So I don't know how I don't know how you would walk into one of those rooms and think somebody's just unconscious, but that's what's been reported. Now, according to media reports, the caller was not one of the surviving roommates. It was a third person who was using one of their phones to make the call. Like I said, that'll get fleshed out later. Some weirdness there. Not exactly sure what's going on. When the police arrived, Kaylee's dog, Murphy, apparently was there though it's not entirely clear to me if the dog was in the house at the time of the murders. I have read that the dog was put up in another room. Whether that was what they did every night, whether that's unusual, 
I can't say, but obviously one of the reasons people think this is significant is this is the dog that didn't bark situation. The dog obviously wasn't going crazy because he didn't wake up the other roommates, I guess is what the speculation, but the dog thing is something that I think it will either be explained away very simply, like the dog wasn't there that night, or it might become kind of significant. We'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, and it could be significant because if the dog didn't bark, it could indicate that the dog knew the person who was the perpetrator. Now, one theory I've heard about the unconscious person thing, because that was that struck me so weird. My understanding is this is an incredibly gruesome scene. There was like no question that all four of them had been stabbed to death and there was blood everywhere. So I don't think anyone would have described them as unconscious. But what I've heard, and this might make more sense, is that the unconscious person was actually one of the surviving roommates or someone who walked into the scene and fainted, had actually run away from the scene and fainted, and someone used that roommate's phone to then call the cops. And the unconscious person is not referring to one of the murdered victims, but rather one of the people who happened upon the murdered victims and passed out because it was so gruesome. It's an interesting theory. That is complete speculation. That is complete speculation. <laughs> it's an interesting theory. I'll be interested to see how that. Yeah, how that and I do turns think out. that needs to be explained away a little bit if we don't, if we ever hear the nine one one call, because if the unconscious person is referring to one of the four victims, that is. I mean, people will just go out the wazoo with their theories because this is like a lot of the other 911 calls that we have analyzed to death. Like the Ellen Greenberg, we've talked a lot about that 911 call describing, not describing actually, the knife that was like protruding straight out of her chest. That that's strange, the fact that the protruding knife wasn't described or that she was maybe in a position that was impossible for her to be in being described on the 911 call. So either way, I think it's of note if one of the victims was described as unconscious. Yeah. So let's, and, and particularly when you look at how these people were killed, all four were stabbed to death. They were likely asleep when the stabbings began, at least according to the police. Apparently some of them did show defensive wounds, which is not surprising because two people in one bed, even if you stab one of them, the other one's going to wake up and, and fight back. There were no signs of sexual assault. The four were killed with a fixed blade knife, and although the police haven't been specific, they have been looking in stores where these blades are sold, indicating that the weapon did not come from the home, which is important because as we've talked about before, ordinarily when someone comes to kill someone, they bring the weapon with them, and it appears they did that here. The weapon has not been located, so they did not leave the weapon there which is also pretty common when you're murdering someone you don't leave the weapon behind because you don't want to leave evidence of yourself and i'm thinking of several cases we've covered where neither of those things are true and what does that indicate it indicates that someone inside the home did it but you don't have that here according to some reports the police believe the knife was a k-bar style combat knife now this knife was invented by the marine corps is my understanding but it is a very popular knife if you're into knives, I mean, this is the kind of knife you'll have. You'll have one of these. Having said that, it is a, I mean, it's a combat knife. It's not a knife you just pick up somewhere. It's not like killing someone with a kitchen knife, for instance. So the fact that it is a K-Bar style knife tells you something. It tells you something about who did this, though it's hard to say exactly what it is, other than it wasn't somebody who walked into the kitchen, pulled out the kitchen knife, and then killed a bunch of people or brought a kitchen knife with them. This is someone who 
owns a knife. And let me just go ahead and say, if you own one K-Bar knife, you own more than one. <laughs> I don't. I doubt this is the only knife owned by this person. And that's the kind of thing that could become important at some point in, in sort of figuring out who this is. Now, blood was everywhere to the extent it has been said, and there have been photos that indicate this, that it was actually sort of seeping out of the walls. And one investigator said in 30 years, he had never seen a crime scene as gruesome as what he saw that day. And this is interesting because remember we have no idea who the suspect or suspects are but it's unlikely the perpetrator escaped the home without some blood on him or her because of where the victims were likely it sounds like they were at least some of them were in bed you have to kind of get intimate you know the bed doesn't have to be that big but you kind of have to lean over someone especially if there's defensive wounds they're going to be touching you at some point and if this is the bloodiest scene you know one of these investigators has seen in 30 years it sounds very unlikely this person would have escaped without blood on them and probably a lot of blood on them even if it's just on the floor if blood is seeping out of the house it's going to be on the ground and i don't know if they have boot prints or shoe prints but that's something that if it's dark you probably can't see where you're going and you're probably stepping in some blood. And let me just say, I mean, this reminds me of the Darley Rattier case. We talked about this. An incredibly bloody crime, there should be a lot of evidence of the person. It's just hard to commit a crime like this and not leave evidence behind. Like Alice said, footprints, handprints, even if you're wearing a glove, handprints. There's actually a picture of a handprint on a window. Unclear whether or not it's the person who did this or not, but it's a picture that's been floating around the internet. Like Al said, you're going to have to lean over the bed. I mean, there should be DNA. There should be hair. There should be all sorts of things. If there are defensive wounds on the people, then they're going to be, I'll call them defensive wounds, on the killer. I mean, we've talked about this before. You stab somebody with a knife, you get into a fight with a knife, you're probably going to end up cutting yourself. They're going to fight back. There should be DNA under people's fingernails. There should be all sorts of evidence of who this is. Now, one thing to say about this if this is a person who's never committed a crime before, or at least never been arrested for a crime, just having their DNA doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a hit. As we've talked about on DNA, just because you have DNA, if you put it into CODIS and it's an offender who's never offended before, you're not necessarily going to get a hit. It's one of the reasons the genetic genealogy is so exciting because it's another database of DNA. And this might be the kind of case where you're going to have to end up doing something like that this is a college town. You could imagine that the killer is a college kid. Their DNA might have never been in a database. So even if you have it, it could be an unknown subject. You got all this evidence of them. And if you find them, they're going to be dead rights. You're going to convict them easily. But first you have to find them. And so far they haven't done that. Right. Now, Let's talk more about this house. Some have described the house as a party house, but neighbors report that while there were some small parties, kind of like what I was talking about with that many people, even if every one of the roommates were home, it's almost a small party. The house was usually quiet by about 10 p.m. This also makes sense with the patterns of all of the roommates who slept in the house that night. None of them had a party at the house. They all went to parties outside of the house and they all came home to sleep around 1 or 1.30 a.m. Now, police appear to have no suspects. We haven't heard anything from them. It's possible they haven't told us, but it really doesn't seem like they have honed in on anyone. But they have said that the, quote, totality of the circumstances lead them to believe this is a targeted crime and not a murder-suicide. 
Now, the police have ruled out a number of suspects, including the survivors we talked about who lived on the first floor, which I think is important. Basically, everyone who we know in this story has been ruled out. And that's the survivors who lived on the first floor, Jake, the ex-boyfriend, and a man at the food truck who apparently was standing by and could be seen in the security footage, and the Uber driver who dropped off Maddie and Kaylee back home after they were at the food truck. And whoever called the 911 call, who apparently was not one of the roommate survivors. There are rumors that Kaylee had a stalker, but those suggestions are unconfirmed. They seem to be coming from other sources, not the police. They are coming from other students at the university, from anyone who's willing to talk to the media. And that's kind of what has made this case a little bit confusing, is that family members have released cell phone records and, you know, neighbors have talked to media and university students have talked about what they know in terms of rumors about these victims. And this isn't coming from the police. Really, they should be talking to the police and let the police kind of put all these things together because the police is supposed to be the one who can see all the different evidence that's coming in and see if there's lines to be drawn. But I think that's partly why there's so much interest and confusion in this case because it's not clear what is actually fact. And, you know, the thing about that, this case is very close to spiraling out of control because the longer it goes with no leads and no suspects, I mean, this case is ripe for speculation. In a way, we talk about Delphi a lot, in a way that even Delphi wasn't. In a way that, I mean, this is media on the level of Scott Peterson, Kaylee Anthony level. And what you've seen is more and more people who are talking to the press, being critical of the police. And I just, I worry, and I, and I get it, I get it. I know people are concerned, but I do worry that so much misinformation is, is going out there. Is it going to compromise the investigation? Is it going to make it harder to find this killer? One of the parents, I'm not going to say which one, though, if you followed the case, you know, is very frustrated with the police and has gone on a lot of different news stations all of which are more than willing to have him talk because the media is perfectly happy exploiting the pain of a father to to get ratings. And they've done that. And and he said a lot of things that some people have, have expressed a lot of concern that it may jeopardize the investigation. I don't know if it will or not, but I'm worried that if they don't find who did this soon, this is only going to get worse. And, and this what Alice said is very real and is a very real problem. Yeah. And some of you may be saying, wait, 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 you just mentioned a potential stalker. That sounds very like alarm bells. Well, the police did look into that and they've they've said that they've identified the so-called stalker and that Kaylee's interaction with him was an isolated incident rather than some like long drawn out obsession. Now, there are also reports that Kaylee's injuries were significantly more brutal than others. That's not coming from the police. And I think whether that's true or not, that's probably why people are thinking that Kaylee was the targeted one. Who knows? She could have fought back the hardest. She could have been the only one who was awake who could fight back. And maybe that's why her injuries were so significant. I think it's hard to read into that right now. And it could be fraught to read into it without knowing more. That's actually confirmed evidence. And that's such an important point that Alice makes because we've heard about overkill. And overkill is a thing. And it's something that people, profilers and others, police look at if there's overkill on a victim it makes you think this is a personal attack however if there are signs of defensive wounds on that person it may just be what alice said 
the person who fights back the most may also be the person who is stabbed the most or beaten the most or shot the most because the attacker is trying to neutralize them. And it is purely an artifact of that. So if she was the one who was woken up, I mean, imagine she's not the target. Imagine that it's her best friend. It's Madison who's the target. And so the person goes in there and the first person they attack is Madison. And it wakes her up and she fights back. That would interrupt the attack on Madison. The attack would now be directed on her. And you could imagine a much more brutal attack. Doesn't mean she's the target at all. In fact, it's the opposite of that. So that kind of speculation is the kind of speculation I think is problematic. Because if you think she's targeted, who are you going to look at as suspects? People related to her. And you're going to ignore people related to Madison. And so I do think the police are not falling into that trap. I think they are looking at everybody. And the FBI is involved in this. The police have not been shy about asking for help. I think the concerns about this investigation are a little overblown. I think so far, there's no reason to be concerned. The only reason has been, as all of you know, I mean, look, the police, they've said they don't think there's any danger to the public. And that is, <laughs> that's confused a lot of people and raised a lot of alarm bells because at times they say it's targeted, at times they say it's not, and people are confused and, and they assume that because the messaging is mixed, that that means the police don't know what they're doing, they're botching this investigation, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll just tell you, as someone who's worked in the communications field before, comms is so much harder than the actual investigation. Interacting with the public, interacting with the press is much more difficult. So don't read into their flubs with the press and assume that means the investigation itself is not going well. These guys know how to investigate a case. They may not be ready in Moscow, Idaho for the press crush that's happened in this case, but they know how to investigate a case. So don't assume just because sometimes their public facing interactions don't inspire a lot of confidence. Don't assume that means they're not doing a good job in the actual investigation. Yeah, I think that's right, Brett. But time is ticking. Weeks have passed by, about a month has passed by, and there doesn't seem to be much movement. And just so you know, in an investigation, a month is not a very long time. Obviously, with something so gruesome as four young people, you know, murdered in their beds, people want answers, especially if it means that they need to be afraid for their own lives. But I do think that this case can quickly spiral out of control with all the people talking to the media and kind of all the armchair detectives. So we'll see what happens and we'll, you know, we'll give you any updates that we can. But we thought it'd be helpful to put all of this evidence all in one place, what we do know and what is speculation so that you guys have it at your fingertips. Yeah. And look, I hope that this, I hope this case is solved quickly. It is interesting to me that it hasn't been solved up to this point, because you would think if this was someone who knew them, it shouldn't be that hard for the police to figure it out. It's usually not. When somebody is killed by people they know, it's usually pretty obvious, and the police usually pretty quickly identify that person and move in on them. That hasn't happened here, and that does raise the possibility in the specter of a serial killer or some sort of other random attack. And I understand why that is, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that at the end of the day, whenever this crime is solved, it will be someone in that community and it will be someone who is familiar with these folks, even if they weren't familiar with the house. And and the crime will never make sense because murdering four people never makes sense, but it won't be a random attack and this won't be a serial killer. That That's I'm going out on a limb there. 
But that's sort of how I think it's going to end up. And obviously, we will continue to follow this case. This will not be the last time we talk about it. And once there's more information, more concrete information, we'll do a follow-up. Yeah, bro. I think I'm in the same camp with you that this is not a serial killer because a serial killer's M.O. is usually not just like eliminating four people. I, I think we will find out that several if not more than one of these victims was like collateral damage to whatever the attack was actually meant for. But we just don't know enough at this point. But if it were a serial killer, it, this is very risky. It, it seems strange. These are like kind of four separate or at least two separate groups of people. It's not like they were attacking a close knit group of friends who had maybe smited them. So I do think that we will find out that some of these victims possibly were collateral to the intended victim. Yeah, and you think about like Henry Kaifek, which we talked about on The Prosecutors a long time ago, it seems like. <laughs> a couple of years ago now, I guess. And that was a crime like, like this in that several people, six people, I think, were killed by an axe on a farmhouse. And as we talked about that, there was speculation that it was sort of a random killer. It was a serial killer. That's not where we ended up. We ended up that it was the neighbor who was in love with one of the people on the farm, and that's what led them to do it. I think that's what you're going to see here. I think you're going to find that this is someone connected to this group, even if it's only one person. We'll see what happens. I know there's a lot of speculation. That that's not the case, and we may be wrong, but I will say this. If we are wrong, this will be one of the most sensational murders in history because it's just not common to have this kind of random, brutal crime like this. And if, I mean, why is Ted Bundy famous? Because of something like this, right? Going into a sorority house and murdering several girls in the sorority house is kind of like what happened here. And if that's what this turns out to be, then this is really going to be a, a huge case, one people talk about for decades and decades. At the end of the day, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think they're going to find who did this, and it's going to, quote-unquote, make sense. I think that's right, Brett. Well, with that, you know, it's funny. When we started, we're like, gosh, we have nothing to talk about because there's really not that much information. And here we go, <laughs> doing what we do best, which is to talk. But before we sign off, Brett, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, Alice, I can barely talk today anyway. I'm surprised I made it through the whole episode. I'm just glad I made it here. So thank you guys for listening and, and can't wait to see you next time. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for joining us. And thank you for checking us out at the Prosecutors Pod as well as Legal Briefs and for all the five star reviews you guys have been leaving. We've been seeing a massive slew of it. I don't know if it's the holiday spirit or whatnot, but we read them and we are so thankful for them and thankful for all of you. We couldn't do this if it weren't for you listening. So until next time, I'm Alice. And I'm Brett. And this is the Prosecutors Legal Briefs. different ways but i heard a i heard one where 
it seemed like people knew what they were talking about and they pronounced it Gunclavis. And they had the dad on and they introduced him as Gunclavis okay. and he didn't correct them. Okay. So I'm sure if it's wrong, someone will correct us, okay. but maybe just note that, that we think that's the pronunciation. Yep. Okay, let's start. Because I think you need to go to sleep. <laughs> I can do something. I, 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 we're going to get through this and it's going to be fine. Okay. I'm not tired. I just can't talk. It's I've okay. I've lost my talking maybe ability. Maybe you're...